Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the Crash MotoGP podcast. An absolute pleasure to have your company. As always, my name is Harry Benjamin, joined by former British champion and BT Sport commentator Keith Hewitt and Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren. On the show this week, more calendar rumours, rider rumours, because it is, well, the summer break, so rumours are the main talking point. And in light of Formula One's recent experiment with a format change, adding in what is essentially a sprint qualifying race, should MotoGP change up their format too? All that, plus your questions answered as ever. Keith, Pete, welcome as always. Always a pleasure to have you alongside. And we're going to start as well with a few calendar updates because we have obviously the big news last week, which was Australia uh, going down the pan yet again. And uh, the latest news coming out in terms of the MotoGP calendar is that the uh, Mandalinka circuit is 80% complete in uh, Indonesia. It's set to host uh, the World Superbikes this year and MotoGP in 2022. So homologation, they're saying, is expected by the end of the month however thailand is considering postponing their 2021 moto gp event which is then casting doubt on the neighboring uh, circuits around there so what are you hearing from your ends keith and pete uh, it's exciting in one terms that we're getting this sort of new circuit but also we're still so unsure about how long this calendar is going to be i know we've spoken about it already but it just doesn't seem like it's doable at the moment I'll tell you what, if you were a circuit builder at the moment, investing all the amount of money, you would be whinging about where you are in the, the great wide scheme of things, wouldn't you? Because what a time to invest in something like that. You just hope that they've got the funding to carry it through. How many times have we seen this kind of, I'll call it the circuit of Wales syndrome. Uh, they're far, far further down the road than that, of course. But it's still about funding. It's still about putting that to, to the test. And it's not going to happen anytime soon the thailand thing i mean it's quite interesting i was reading on crash.net um earlier today pete's pete on that and peter's well connected in thailand as am i as well through family obviously and and we understand what's going on in thailand but then i spoke to a very high up person uh, just yesterday afternoon regarding the thai round particularly and they have all the protocols in place they have agreement with the region as how they're going to ship people on charter flights in hotel bubbles, in flight bubbles, in and out of Thailand for that job. And across, of course, to Kuala Lumpur straight after that, because it's back to back with Sepang. If we lose Thailand, we're probably going to lose Sepang unless it goes a double header there. But really and truly, 
Nobody really knows. I would suspect that what's happened is they've got agreement for their protocols. They've got agreement on how they're going to run the event if it goes ahead. But if the massive increase in uh, in the pandemic in Thailand continues at the rate it's going out at the moment, I certainly can't see it. My family can't see it. And like I say, we're 50-50 we're based here and there. Mm. Um, Pete, you're, you're right on top of it. And you know how tough it is just to live there at the moment. As you say, Keith, the added dimension with these overseas races is this big question mark over having fans, isn't it? I mean, we've seen that, that Dorna and MotoGP, they can cope with closed-door races in Europe, no problem. Even if it's just a handful of fans, let's say, effectively, the races can go ahead. But we've always been told that these overseas races, because of all the added costs involved, that they need spectators. And, you know, you're in a situation where Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, there's a lot of restrictions on any kind of gatherings. You can barely have a restaurant open in some places. So let alone having significant numbers of fans, that seems to be the, the big issue that needs to be overcome. How would they fill that, that financial black hole of, of the ticket sales that, that presumably won't be able to go ahead at the moment unless things change dramatically in the next three months? I wonder how deep Dawn's pockets are. I mean, they've bailed out quite a lot this last year or so. Um, I mean, it, it's it's hard work at Trackside. I mean, I've been told by numerous people that it's worse this year than it was in 2020. They're having a much harder time this year than they did in 2020. Um, and with the increase, I mean, <laughs> I mean, look at us. Freedom Day, Monday. Huh. I mean, it's almost laughable, isn't it? I mean, things are going from bad to worse in the way of infections, and yet we are on Freedom Day. I mean, they opened all the nightclubs here on uh, one minute past 12 o'clock. And you're thinking to yourself, it's almost like lemmings jumping over the cliff, it feels like to me. You know, everybody, of course, we all want it. Everybody wants it. We're all going stir crazy. But, you know, my youngest daughter's school has shut down completely. Like, two or three years are, are rife with COVID, positive tests. Teachers have got it, positive tests. I mean, and we're all going to be running around with no masks on for the next, until we get to the third, fourth, fifth rock wave or whatever it is. It ain't going away, and there's a good argument for saying we've got to put up with it and get used to it, but there are actually people still dying from it. I don't know why I say that with a smile on my face, because it really, really ain't funny. I mean, if you've got vulnerable people around you, I mean, I've got a very elderly mum who has to have carers every day, I'm round there every day, my wife's round there every day. The chances of her, even though she's double jabbed, chances of her getting it is quite high. And when you run into a country like Thailand where their vaccination program is so far behind the game, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. Thailand is notorious for not, should we say, pushing forward some of the things that they probably should do. Um, a lot depends on uh, uh, money and government quite often, but they do seem to be a long, long way behind considering their aspirations. I saw an advert the other day, I think it was on Eurosport, for the jet ski championships that, that the finale is, is in quite often. They have it in Pattaya, in, uh, down in Chambéry, down the, 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 on the Gulf Coast. And, it, it, you know, that is going to bring in lots of people as well. It's a question of risk and reward. Don't quite know where to go with this, Peter. I've got to say I'm rambling as I do, but Thailand is one of those situations that I can't personally see it happening, but I'm told all the protocols are in place. They've got agreement with the government and the region for going to Thailand with the 3,500 people or whatever it is now for, for, for the classes, and then they will go again as in their bubble across to Malaysia for the Sepang International Race as well. So it's in place, but it's going to be a case, I think, 
on the increase in infections in the country and whether Dorna are prepared to pay Chang International Circuit, the promoters and, and so on and so forth, the money that they need to run the event without spectators. Because I can't see that happening. I can't see spectators there. I, th I think it's also interesting the scenario or the order of things that we've seen with event cancellations. We've, we've seen that usually Dorna and MotoGP, they're ready to go anywhere. As you say, they plan for every eventuality. It's usually the cancellation comes from the circuit side, doesn't it? Where, it, you know, Dorna leave it in the hands of the tracks or the organisers in, in each country. It's not Dorna that usually cancel races. It's the races that say, sorry, we can't have MotoGP. So, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised at all that Dorna is absolutely 100% ready to go. Um, I think from their side, they, they are ready to have a race. They can put a race on, but they need to hear from, from the Thai side, from the Malaysian side, you know, all of the, you know, each individual country, do you, do you want to go ahead with the race? And we normally hear that the timeline is about three months. That's usually what, what you know, when Donna needs to know, are you going to have a race or not? So it's just interesting that this mid-July, where we are now, the race is scheduled exactly for mid-October, and suddenly there's these reports in the Thai media of the... Some, some of the government ministers to do with tourism saying that they, you know, not that, it, not that they're absolutely 100% cancelled, but they're considering it, given the situation. So it just fits in with that timeline, but I've no doubt that most GP would be ready to go to Malaysia or Thailand, you know, almost at a drop of a hat now. I think they've got everything ready. We saw for the Sepang test, yes, it didn't go ahead, but they also had a really good bubble system ready, you know, stay at the, near the, near the uh, airport, the track's right there. They would, they would just go directly from the, the track to the hotels, no, you know, no visiting anywhere else. They were ready to go. But then, again, the, the, the circuit or the Malaysian government decided it was too risky and they pulled the test. So I think, I think the ball is in the court of the, each individual circuit or the government, the people that are funding the race, to really tell MotoGP what they want to do. The other aspect, I suppose, sorry for jumping in again, Harry, but I think the other, the other aspect that we've got to consider as well with some of these... Um, Southeast Asian tracks, hospitality is a major thing. Being seen at an event like that is a major thing. The, the money comes to the track side. They want to be seen. A bit, bit like the F1, you know, Cruz and co, that were all there being seen on the, you know, you get the same Thai version of that. It's a big deal in Thailand being seen at the right event. And no guest passes are being issued by anybody. You cannot get a guest pass. I mean, it's, it's something, I, I spoke to Mike Trimby at Erta the other day, the, the source of many a guest pass for me and my, uh, my guests. Um, and they are not being issued. I mean, Silverstone, forget it. You're not going to get a guest pass. There's nobody going to be, be, be behind that fence that's not supposed to be behind that fence. And I can see that having some impact as well. You know, government officials that want to bring along all their people, if you like, and, and be seen at such an event. Um, they won't be issued uh, for behind the uh, paddock fencing, behind the paddock area. So that may have an, a bearing on it as well. There are so many things that need to fall into place, aren't there? Um, Martin McMartin, and I have not made that name up, that is his name apparently, um, has asked, you know, on your own personal belief, do you think the season would be shortened or would you prefer to see more double-up rounds in Europe? I think the great thing about double-up rounds, and they never quite turn out like you would imagine. You won't get the same, you won't get the same result two times over because... The weather will be slightly different. The track will be slightly different. The, the data will have been, you know, looked at and sorted and, and changed. Um, so I think that the, a double header at the same track, I naturally wouldn't be that keen on, naturally. But the fact is, is that we do get two distinct races as opposed to the sort of exactly the same result weekend after weekend. So double headers, probably not the best idea in the world, but certainly 
the best idea in the circumstances, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. I think that they will try to keep the numbers up. So they they won't just shorten the season. I think, they, as Keith says, they'll do back-to-back races. Or like we saw with Portimao, they could bring in a racetrack from earlier earlier in the season again. You know, maybe go back to Jerez, Catalonia. You know, th- there's lots of options. So I think we will see a, a full season in terms of numbers. But whether the overseas events will happen, it's, it's wait and see, I think. As long as we don't get two at Valencia. <laughs> Not a fan then. <laughs> no. Well, uh, we'll have to. Uh, well, again, it's all about waiting and seeing, is it? You just have to wait, don't you? Um, all right. Well, that's uh, some of the calendar talk growing, which is nice to see. You know, more circuits on the horizon, but still so unpredictable. Let's uh, go into more unpredictable territory, shall we? Uh, and Patronus Yamaha, their 2022 lineup won't be announced until after Austria, I'm imagining at the very earliest. Um, Razlan Razali, the team principal of Petronas SRT, confirming that that will not happen uh, until after both races in August. Uh, and there's still plenty of time, though, isn't there, in this MotoGP season? If we have a look first at uh, their performance of the, the two riders, first of all, Petronas Yamaha haven't quite hit the heights of last season yet, where Morbidelli finished up vice-champion, of course. Even Morbidelli being very vocal this season about being on that two-year-old M1 spec machine, and now a leg injury picked up at Le Mans. Looks like it's going to keep him out of racing until Misano. Meanwhile, on the other side of the garage, I mean, we've talked about it loads, Valentino Rossi has only had one top 10 finish through the first nine races. Are we going to see a whole new lineup next year? Morbidelli could be on his way to the factory seat and Valentino Rossi potentially to retirement. Interesting, though, they're saying they're waiting completely on what Valentino Rossi's going to do. Well, you would, wouldn't you? The icon at the end of the day. I suppose you would wait for him. But, I mean, I'm not even looking forward to next year. I'm looking forward to the next round because Cal Crutchlow back. I mean, that's the big deal for me. I mean, Cal Crutchlow, I, I, I feel quite sympathetic towards Cal to be honest with you he's done no testing Yamaha have done what they did with Lorenzo basically they've not he's not been out on the bike he's hardly done any work at all to be chucked in the deep end at at, uh, the Red Bull ring I just think you know he's not race fit you know he'll be mega fit but not race fit because he's not done anything particularly back to back I suppose will be fine he'll have a, a, a second bite of the cherry the week after but it's a it's a it's a tall order for Cal to come in and perform, and he personally will want to perform. I'll, I'll bet you, in his heart of hearts, he'd rather not race in the situation that he's in at the moment because racers want to want perfection. They want it to be the best it can be. They want their best performance. And Cal, if he manages to perform uh, well in the Red Bull ring, you know, at the drop of a hat, I'll be a amazed and b unbelievably pleased um just a shame that he's not full-time really and it's a shame that yamaha haven't really given him an opportunity to to run the bike a bit more often yeah well of course pete you know it would be a very popular entry wouldn't it especially with silverstone not too far away either british rider back on the grid but do you think it it's most likely we will see him back I think he's the, he's the best person available for the job. So, yeah, if you're a betting man, you, you know. No, he is. He is definitely. Yeah, there we are. I think the question is how many races that does he does he do? We know that, that Morbidelli is out until Mizano. So will they keep Crutchlow on for all four rounds? You know, who knows? That would be great. That would include Silverstone. That would be a big boost. I think the issue with, with Cal as to why he might want to, you know, to do this is that he's got a bit of a hole in his testing schedule. 
Now, you know, there's a state of emergency in Japan or in certain parts of Japan, I think, at the moment, and I think that's interrupted what should have been sort of a steady stream of tests. And so, and then on top of that, he's lost his crew chief. The, you know, the test team crew chief is now Maverick Villanes' crew chief. So, you know, Cal would have been off the bike for a very long time otherwise if he doesn't do these races. So I think, um, you know, it, it makes sense to keep him on the bike. As Keith says, you know, you need to be riding the bike. We saw with Lorenzo last year, he rode at the start of the year and then he tried to ride again at the end of the year and it was just too long off the bike. So if nothing else, Cal will be able to, go, you know, get time on a MotoGP bike for Patronus. He can give them some points. You were just saying, you know, what a disastrous year they've had so far, you know some teams points. I mean, they're, they're, what, ninth in the teams championship. They were second last year. You know, they need any points they can get. It's all very well as saying, oh, put on some other, you know, young guys just to see who, who might do something special on the bike. But, but this year is only halfway through. You know, I think they, they, they badly want to do what they can for this year, resurrect what they can from this season with all the difficulties that they've had. So I think Cal is the best guy to give them a good result. I think that, it will, you know, he'll be on track. He'll be able to, it'll help with his test riding. He can see what the other riders are doing. Maybe he's a very analytical guy, as Keith says, you know, he can spot what other riders on other bikes, how they're getting their speed. You know, he's always been very good at that. Um, and I think he'll also it'll improve his understanding of the bike when, when Quattraro says something, you know, the bike's doing something. And he'll understand a bit more what, what he means by that so that when the testing starts again for him, which I think is maybe not until mid-October, he'll be able to work on things that he, he can better understand the riders need at the track. So I think, I think it, as Keith said, it's a very difficult situation as far as results. It's a two-year-old bike, which also means there's not many new parts you can put on it that will actually apply. So it's not going to be that he's going to be testing for 2022 or anything. He's just going to be you know, keeping active, doing what he can with the test riding role. But it'll be great to see him with Ramon Focada. I mean, there's two, you know, Cal, super experienced, and loads of knowledge of the Honda. Focada, super experienced, loads of knowledge of the Yamaha. You know, those two guys, similar characters. Um, I think that'll be interesting as well. And, and, you know, for Patronus having a big name as well in the team, alongside Rossi. He wasn't bad on a Yamaha in the old days. I would think that he's kind of, apart from the perfection bit, he's going to be looking forward to it. But, um, and he gets a get-out-of-jail-free card, really, doesn't he? Not that he'll want one, but um, you know, the fact is that he'll be riding that older bike. It'll be without much mileage under his belt. Um, but it's in his contract at the end of the day, so you know, he's, he's, he's obliged to, to get on with it. And after all, Cal does like money. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, it was uh, Garrett Gerloff who uh, replaced uh, Morbidelia Assin, but he's been ruled out due to a clash with World Superbikes. But even if Carl Crutchlow isn't particularly, you know, keen on doing it, it would serve as good preparation for a wildcard entry at the British Grand Prix. And we spoke about wildcards last week with Danny Pedrosa potentially being lined up in the KTM. So could this be, if anything, just a good bit of prep preparation for a, for a Silverstone entry? I think the fact we're talking about it is a good thing, Harry, because having just seen the Formula One guys, I mean, how beautiful did Silverstone look? Oh. Sunshine and fans at trackside. <laughs> oh, there we go, the tester. All the hairs have just gone up on my arms as I talked about it. That's always, it's always a thing, isn't it? You suddenly, I can feel that everything standing to attention when it came to Silverstone. It was wonderful to see F1 in such good order, you know, proper people down on the grid, you know, racing, of course, you know, it depends on your cup of tea, really, isn't it? I mean, we see a bit more action in MotoGP, but I'm not going to be hard on, on Formula One. It was good to see Formula One, good to see Silverstone, 
in such good order and looking forward to what it will be like with MotoGP and, and the very talk of the like of Cal Crutchlow possibly being a wild card on a factory Yamaha at the British Grand Prix when we've all been waiting for such a long time to get back to trackside for the British Grand Prix it is going to be rammed get it sorted now but of course things like Day of Champions that we used to have on the Thursday for Two Wheels for Life which by the way look them up Two Wheels for Life they very much appreciate your uh, help and uh, subscriptions um, Two Wheels for Life who do a fantastic job their funding and it'll be the same across all charities of course at the moment are really really struggling because some of their main income events are not being supported this year and again Thursday prior to Silverstone you know I think that we can't have that event I don't think this year unless there's a rapid change as we roll towards the event itself but um, so it's it's going to be one of them ones where I think it's going to be absolutely rammed it's probably going to be the biggest crowd the biggest audience that we've had for years at Silverstone I've just got a feeling that we've got this pent-up enthusiasm for everything and really Formula One all that did was wet our appetite yeah. um, we'll see what our crowd figures are like when we get to it <laughs> I think everyone is uh, super excited for that. Well, British rider back on the grid, maybe the most successful since Barry Sheen. Watch this space. Um, talking of riders, though, and one that's keeping very tight-lipped and has been ever since he dropped that bombshell that he is leaving Yamaha, Maverick Vinales. He's been uh, training uh, recently at a, at a training camp out in the somewhere sunny. Um, apparently, all the, all the usual stuff that we've spoken about, Ducati, Aprilia, have all been snooping around interesting though that he has said everyone has been in contact with him about 2023 so a year out but no one really wants a year out these days do they no i mean you've got davizioso syndrome then haven't you andrea is um had a year out and he looks like he's got no way back at the moment really i love the kevin schwantz comments that were on gp1 you'll have him across those peter i'm sure kevin schwantz saying leaving yamaha he can't work it out for a bike like Aprilia. Poor old Kev, just can't work that one out. It doesn't make any sense to him. Like it doesn't make any sense to me either. You know, you're leaving the best bike on the, you know, it's leading the world championship. It's, it's there or thereabouts and he can't seem to get it together in his head or with his team or whatever the problem is to make that work. It's not gonna be any different with Aprilia, just gonna have a bike that's less likely to get you to the front, in my opinion, at this moment in time. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> he's keeping tight-lipped, exactly as you say, Harry. I mean, sometimes riders do this because they just want a summer break. You, you know, this is the other thing. So you get to the end of the summer break and then all the announcements happen because it means that, you know, they don't have to ruin their holidays then by talking about next year. But, yeah, <laughs> it is interesting that, I mean, when he says that everyone's interested for 2023, I'm assuming probably not Yamaha. But, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know... He's right that all of the contracts are up basically at the end of next year. So he has picked a really difficult time to, to break his contract, if you like, with Yamaha and seek a new team because there's just so few places available. So, you know, he did say a few positive comments about Aprilia and, and that still seems the most likely just because what are the alternatives? As, as Keith said, do you really want to take a year out? I mean, possibly he could do he could do a contract with Aprilia that allows him just a one-year deal and then he, he could have the option of do I want to stay or do I then want to you know go to one of these other teams that he says is interested interested in him so that's that's a, that's an option but honestly we don't really know what maverick uh, has in plan yet let me give you some context on that uh, everyone's interested scenario everyone is always interested in everyone 
when you're talking about 2023. You don't burn a bridge managerially, management-wise. You are always making sure that you've got all and everybody, all and sundry, all on side, ready to go. There's no way that you rule anything out at this point in a contractual negotiation. So, yeah, everyone's interested. I'm interested in running a team with Maverick Vinales in it. <laughs> I, th I think we get a few sponsors on board, and I think that's got legs, Keith. I'd be very excited to see that happen. But, of course, actually, just it, sort of last... Uh, go on, Keith. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, the, point, the point was actually flippantly made, but it's a serious point in that, you know, management are always making sure they've got everybody nailed down as far as they're all talking to everybody at this stage. It's nothing is ruled out. Um, so, yeah, Maverick may have he may have had contract with contact with everybody regarding sort of 2023. But believe me, it's going to rely as much on 2022 as anything else. It's going to be one of them situations where he is going to have to pull his socks up and do the business or he's going to be in trouble. You know, it's. Dovizioso is, is one of the best riders, you know, you can go back to the likes of Randy Mamola, one of the best riders to find himself without a job at the end of the day. I mean, Dovizioso, I mean, you would, you would sign him, you know, but all of a sudden he's been sort of left to one side and he's like the, he's the guy everyone's using to back up their arguments in a, in a, in a management type team type shuffle. You know, you know well, there's Dovizioso on the sidelines, you know, it just keeps the price down for everyone else. Mm. Last one on this, a reshuffle at Ducati. Could that then see him have a home? Because we know that Vinales was... Well, he got enough bikes. Well, exactly. And we know he was negotiating with them before he re-signed with Yamaha. So the only option right now as it stands would be VR46. But with a reshuffle, something could be potentially there at Ducati. And that would seem more logical than Aprilia. I don't know. <laughs> no. Maverick Vinales defies logic. Yeah, you know, it's moment, a situation yeah. where there's something not quite right in the way that he approaches what he's doing to go to be finished last on an M1 factory Yamaha. You would say is almost impossible. You know, most of those guys in the top line could ride that thing around with one end, you know, to last place. It just it's just shocking. And, it, and, I, and I don't understand it. I'm not close enough to be able to make a, an educated, uh, you know, comment on why that is the case but other than a completely flat tire or something i mean how can he be at the back of a field on an m1 yamaha it doesn't make any sense to me why is he considering aprilia i mean alicia spargro you know he has a one lap wonder in it now and again and he's he's sort of an eighth place seventh place sort of runner you know it's going to be interesting the bike hasn't done the business yet dovi hasn't jumped at that bike dovi has not you know, taken a pay cut and decided he's going to race the Aprilia. And there's a reason for that somewhere. You know, at the end of the day, Davizioso was first in line for running an Aprilia, you know, testing an Aprilia, but he's not put pen to paper. So he's obviously not convinced that the Aprilia is the bike for, for, the, for the top man. So I don't know. I think Maverick's making a big mistake. It would be the best thing if he can absolutely, you know, make me crawl back under me stone when it comes to that opinion. Um, but I've seen a lot of it and I just don't think that, that that's the right move for him. Ducati, would you want to make that mistake with Ducati? Would you? I mean, he's got huge talent, Maverick Vinales, but would you want a guy that, that that's head fries every now and again? Would you want that in your team? 
that's the question. I guess it depends which team. Yeah, as you were saying, Keith, there's a lot of Ducatis there, isn't there? Um, but the trouble is, you know, yes, the, the Ducati riders are contracted, most of them, to the factory. So it, it, in theory, moving people around would be easier. But, you know, VR46, you've got to imagine it'll be an Italian rider, probably a VR46 rider that they will want in their MotoGP team. Well, the only Ducati guy in that, that fits that bill is Bagnaia. And I mean, how do you convince him to to leave the factory Ducati team? I mean, it, it, you can't see that happening. So, uh, yeah, I think it's very difficult. I think that I think Ducati would be interested, just from the point of view, as you say, Harry, that that they were willing to make Maverick their number one guy only 18 months ago, and now maybe they have the chance to have that guy for a fraction of the price on one of their eight bikes somewhere. The trouble is, it, it's just come a bit a bit late, isn't it? We've seen that most of the lineups are done now, and um, you know it's not like putting him at Pramac or something. I mean, that, that's that's normally where Ducati sort of put the riders that, that they think are great, but they're not too sure. You know, they don't want to take the risk and put them in the factory team yet, so they let them prove themselves. And we're seeing, you know, with Zarco this year, it's it's working out well that sort of thing. But those Pramac seats are full at the moment, so. Yeah, it, it's it's going to be. It's just as we're saying. There's just not spaces available. It, it's a really, it's a really bad time to be looking for a ride. Yeah, well, Maverick Vinal is le leaving us with uh, more questions than answers for the last few weeks, and uh, we'll continue to do so, I'm sure, for a few more weeks uh, going forward. Uh, now, uh, we've. Uh talked about a little bit with the Formula One at Silverstone that happened uh, just this weekend gone as we record this on a Monday and we saw that they trialed out a new sprint format which was essentially a sprint qualifying race they qualify on Friday night for the sprint then Saturday afternoon they race it out for about half an hour and the results of that sprint set the grid for the Grand Prix on Sunday why do I talk about four wheels on this podcast? Well, the question is, should MotoGP start to look at maybe something similar or just start to ponder a race weekend format change? Keith, we spoke so much to you about your life and career last in the last show, you know, discussing the differences between what it was like in your era and modern day MotoGP. Would you like to see a bit of a format change? And what would you want to put in if, if there was something you could add? I naturally quite like the idea of having a race on a Saturday. I hate the fact that it's qualifying for grid positions. I think, I mean, Formula One got themselves in a right old mess with that, didn't they? I mean, it's not a race. Commentators were told it's not a race. It's a, what is it then? It's a race for qualifying. I mean, they couldn't quite work out exactly what it was. Um, what it was was a sprint race, short sprint race, run any tyres you like, go as fast as you can, which I quite like the format of. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, there's a bit more to it than that. You've got to qualify for the sprint race and then you've got the sprint race then qualifies you for the main race on the Sunday. They didn't want to. And I think that MotoGP will, will be aware of the same kind of situation in that you don't want to pull down the quality, not the quality. What's the word I'm looking for, Pete? You'll know it because you're a word of man of words. Um, <laughs> but they don't they don't want to make it. Well, yeah, I think the significance, I mean, the main race is the main race. So by by diluting that main race into a Saturday, um, I mean, we've got the format in World Superbikes. You know, we've, we've, we've got that situation where they race on a Saturday as well. And, uh, and in British Superbikes, we've got the same situation. Do we want two races, uh, one of less significance than the other, during the course of a weekend? My natural feeling is no. Um, but we live in a democracy when it comes to the fan base. And at the end of the day, what do the fans want? That's the big issue. It's not... It is about what the promoters and what the manufacturers can manage, of course, because if you're going to increase mileage and, and so on and so forth, then you're going to need probably a few more motors 
on the allocation for the year and 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 so on um and bearing in mind too that it's it's a qualifying is a major you know free practice is not really free practice anymore at a motor gp motor three motor two situation free practice is qualifying for qualifying you've got to quali you've got to do a good free practice to get yourself in the right qualifying session um to to then enable you to get yourself towards the front four rows of the grid um after qualifying too so it's 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 already a very busy weekend regarding data you only have to have a slight weather change in there as well during the course of the first two days and it really does put everybody on the back foot so i'm not keen but i can understand why fans might say oh yeah that's great i mean who wouldn't want more races it's a bit like saying well you know the riders and teams are all saying well we only want 20 races in the year because it's it's bloody hard work traveling from country to country and all the teams are at bursting point by the time we get to the, the southeast asian um scenario but you know the fans would all turn around and say let's have 28 rounds it's great yeah. television what? companies yeah 28 rounds fine that gets us nicely uh into where we want to be with that as well it's a, it's, a, it's a hard one isn't it but i would say that that we are where we are i like the format we've got at the moment a sprint race would be a bit of a novelty mm. but it's the it's it's up to the fans at the end of the day and i dare say they're going to be pretty much uh, involved in this as dawn are, are, are quite um well they like interacting with fans they like to they keep an eye on their fan base they they are involved in that and they're they're leaders compared with formula one when it comes to social media and stuff like that as well Adorna have been very very good when it comes to picking up on the social media the importance of social media and the importance of of their fan base whereas formula one in the hands of bernie of course wasn't Ooh, no, um yeah. it's it's a it's a marked difference now that we've moved on with uh your latest lot was it liberty that have got uh, the ownership of it all um can i waffle on any longer no <laughs> no street race no, That's well, the answer. well it's interesting from my understanding is with, with the f1 you know they're obviously trialing out a few few races just to see what it's like there's no confirmed plans for it yet but uh it, it, in my opinion it was there to try and invigorate what was happening during the sunday grand prix to try and add in a few more variables to make the racing on sunday more exciting Compare that with MotoGP. I don't necessarily think that's the. There is no problem there with MotoGP at the moment in terms of Sunday races. And in fact, what I saw with the F1 is it more reinvigorated Friday practice more than anything. That suddenly became off all the day on Friday. That suddenly became more enthralling and interesting. Whereas, as you say, Keith, actually right now MotoGP's already got that in place. Friday practice is already quite crucial for the qualifying. So, at the moment, the only thing I could I would drop in that might spice things up and this would be very controversial i would like both your opinions on it what do you think of reverse grids oh go away <laughs> shut the front door <laughs> i'd like to see behave what yourself yeah. <laughs> i'd like to see what laquona could do from the front no now that oh. that comes into the the domain of novelty yes um, I'm afraid that this is a serious sport yeah. <laughs> um, and, and putting the, um, all the efforts and all the millions that are spent on the back row of the grid to get tangled up with everyone else. I mean, to start with, to start with you, you've got a situation where the amount of things that can happen during the course of a race. I mean, the, 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 the reason there's such a scratch and a kick what's it scramble to get to the front of qualifying is because you don't want to get tangled up in someone else's first corner mm. um, problem. Um, 
and that will happen and that will mess the the championship about and so on and so forth but reverse grids now we're not going banger racing let's have a figure of eight shall we somewhere as well <laughs> hey well go on pete what are your opinions on this uh, well i think yeah <laughs> I mean, this, I don't like reverse grids. I think there's, there's, two, there's two sides to this. Though, isn't there? I mean, we did used to hear there's too, many, too much testing, not enough race weekends. So then we saw the testings drop for the race weekends. I think you could make an argument now. There's too much practice time relative to the 45-minute race. You know, you four free practice sessions. I know they're not as simple as he says. They're more like qualifying sessions. But still, four free practice sessions, two qualifying sessions, one warm-up, and then one 45-minute race. Now, you know... So I think everything should be looked at. I think one of the great things about the F1 weekend, I don't watch many F1 re races, but it was great to see how many fans were there because let's be honest, everything has changed during this pandemic. You know, people's, people's lives have changed, their, their interests have changed, their viewing habits. It was great to see that actually people still want to come back to a racetrack, you know, and, and, and watch an event. Now, we don't know how it might be, you know, at races where let's say there's a much bigger proportion of of foreign visitors that come in unless we were just talking about the tourism industry and things like that you know a lot of a lot of countries use the races to try and bring people into the country well that's that's a lot more difficult now is that going to have a bigger impact on you know how much money they're willing to spend on hosting races but anyway that's a slightly different issue but it was great to see that at silverstone where there's a big obviously a big fan base at home in the uk they can still come to the races so we can expect hopefully it'll be the same for silverstone motor gp which is sort of equally as popular really now i think sprint races the trouble is as keith says you don't want to lose you don't want to overshadow the main race and so what do you do and then you have the problem of if you win a sprint race can you say you're a grand prix winner when you when you haven't won a main race so you know for me divide the grid in half and maybe do like a you know half the half of you know the, the by world championship order first third fifth seventh you know and, and you do a race and but what does it count for? Does it count for qualifying? As Keith says, it's a bit messy when you have a race to count for qualifying. But, I mean, we've been talking about, for example, Moto2 and Moto3, all these problems with towing and all this. Why not experiment in those classes? Make them do a sprint race. You know, divide the class in two so there's no conflict with... No one's going to claim, well, I'm the best guy on the day because, well, you only raced half the grid. But, you know, it might be a way of getting rid of all of that. Instead of doing, you know, we keep talking about Super Pole and separating people, just make them do a race. Um, you know, who knows? I think everything should be looked at because we've seen Moto2. It's, it's a one-engine class. You know, people, oh, you can never do that in Grand Prix. You know, you can't have everyone using the same engine. We've seen back-to-back -back races, uh, you know, because of the COVID pandemic. Again, people would have said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. So I, I think it's all, everything should be on the table. And I think potentially, you know, I know Lewis Hamilton said something about two-day weekends, didn't he? That, that maybe he thought they didn't need to be, you know, three days. The trouble is that then people that go to the races, they get less value for money, don't they? If it's only, you know, things like that. So it's not as simple as that. But I understand what he's, the trouble when you have loads of practices that you a bit like you're saying with reversing the order or things, you arrange people by the fastest guy at the front and then you have a race and say, why don't they overtake? Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you spent five hours getting the top guy to start at the front of the grid. <laughs> That's in Formula One, not in my GP. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> yeah. The, um, Fair point. I mean, it, you, you had the Jonathan Ray rule, didn't you, for, for a while at World Superbikes, where they mucked about with the front two rows of the grid oh, and tried right, to put yes. Jonathan Ray back a a row or two, which didn't work at all, because by the end of lap one, he was always in front anyway. So uh, all, all I think that did was really honed Jonathan Ray's one lap um, determination, which was always a bit of a spectacle. I don't know. I think that uh, 
the point you make there, Pete, is actually quite valid in that you, 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 you know, the teams that are at the front are the best ones and, and they're the fastest guys that will start from the front. Um, so it is a, it, I, I can understand that they're putting them back a little bit, but it's been tried before and, it, and I think it just makes a mess of the championship at the end of the day. The fast guys are the fast guys. Um, MotoGP is within a second. The whole grid is within a second after qualifying with the exception of maybe one or two riders, but, but generally it's it's all within a second. I mean, when it's that tight, starting to put people at the back and, and making them force their way through, we end up with the, while we're on the car analogies, the um, Hamilton Verstappen situation, don't we? Someone trying to ram it underneath someone else in an inappropriate place, perhaps. Um, and, and you end up with what happened there. You know, a major title contender has been bashed out of the, out of the well, he's still got, what, a seven-point lead in it, so Hamilton's got more work to do yet. But the point still is valid in that, you know, you might lose your championship leader trying to make his way through the through the slightly slower riders in MotoGP. Nah, leave that bit as it is. No nah. reverse grid. Not yeah, no it. reverse grids. No, no reverse grids. <laughs> Stupid suggestion. We can agree on that. <laughs> um, all right then. So I quite uh, like figure no, eight still though. Figure of eight. I don't know. I've well, got Joe Calab, haven't you? Um, like in rallying as well. Um, right, we've got lots of you who have got in touch, which is really lovely to see. And I uh, thought I'd open up with a few more listener questions to fire at you. So uh, no particular order on this is as they've come in. So we'll just tackle them one by one. Um, Nathan Ayers has asked, guys, uh, what effect will Suzuki not having... I thought I've asked that question before. I'm not asking that one again. I've asked it already. Uh, we'll go to the second one. Um, Junks has asked, with Kawasaki... Brilliant names. Dominating World Superbike for almost a decade. Do you think we'll see them return to MotoGP anytime soon? So, yeah, I mean, it's the, one of the biggest companies in Japan, the, the Kawasaki Heavy Industries. I mean, their, their funding is not something that's ever going to be brought into dispute. But uh, no, um, I just can't see them coming back at it. The, the, you know, the grid is, is pretty well full as it is at the moment. Um, Kawasaki seem to be happy with where they are with the road bike situation. And, uh, and that's it. It's a shame. Yeah, you can say, say the same about BMW. I mean, why aren't BMW concentrating on, on MotoGP? It's a, a top-line class, you know, rah, rah, rah. You know, you know, KTM have proved that you can do it, but they've chucked everything, including the kitchen sink, at it to, um, to get themselves into the position they're at. Um, you know, it doesn't seem to be the will on these other... It's a massive risk as well, isn't it, Peter? But commercially, you know, Kawasaki comes in. You would expect after a certain time... I mean, I go back, and I'm sure Peter does as well, to some extent, to the, the Court Ballington, Greg Hansford days when they brought that Kawasaki 500cc bike into, you know, Grand Prix racing, and, and it was a technically very innovative. It was a it was a great different motorbike for, for changing head angles and stuff. It was it was really adjustable compared with bikes back in the day that weren't that adjustable. So it was quite quite ahead of its time, but it never quite worked for them, and they didn't quite have the the push behind it to 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 be in a championship sort of position so no i can't see kawasaki coming back no i think it's going to be difficult also because the way that they left previously um <laughs> it was a bit awkward should we say in that they ended up running marco balandri didn't they on that sort of all black unsponsored hayate i think it was called machine wasn't it they didn't want a kawasaki logo on it everywhere it was purely to kind of fulfill a bit of a contractual agreement i think with dorna to to have a bike on the grid but it wasn't i don't think it went down well with dorna i don't think dorna will be bending over backwards to to have them coming back 
Um, you know, we know all the manufacturers are, are signed up on these five-year agreements, and uh, I think, uh, yeah, it, it didn't go down too well the way that it, that it ended with Kawasaki previously. So I think, I mean, if Kawasaki wanted to come back, they definitely could, but I don't think Dorna are going to be bending over backwards to accommodate them. I think there's, there's plenty, there's six manufacturers, as we're saying already, you know, if each of them, okay, it's not really balanced at the moment, we're talking about eight Ducatis next year, but potentially if each of them had one satellite team, etc., that's kind of the long-term view that Dorna seem to have. They don't seem to be chasing any, any other manufacturers, whether it's Kawasaki or BMW, to be honest. And Dorna own World Superbike as well, so at the end of the day, why would they want to mire that championship by pulling out their number one people from, from there, perhaps, and, and redirecting Kawasaki budget from World Superbike to, to MotoGP? I think it's, the status quo is looking... Okay for Kawasaki where it is and Dorna at the moment. Okay, well, thank you, Junks, for that question. Actually, following on, this is a good one from Mike Salter. Um, will there be too many Ducatis in MotoGP next year? Is this fair on the other manufacturers? Should there be a cap? We touched on this last time out, didn't we? When uh, I, I said to you, eight bikes, data is everything. So you've got all that data coming down. You know, from and you've got opportunities to to run different aero and stuff like that across the teams as well. So you know, I always think of Ducati quite rightly as the Ferrari of, of bike racing, you know, not just because they're Italian or because Marinello and the like have always assisted them with certain things. <clears throat> but the fact is, is that they're not really doing the business um, when they ought to be. You know, Ducati is there or thereabouts, but it's still not quite where they want it to be. All that extra data next year, will that get them where they want to be? We'll find out, of course, in 2022. But um, is it unfair no, because the other manufacturers have agreed to it. They would have had to have agreed to it. The Manufacturers Association will have will have seen the plans, will know the plans, and they would have been lobbying behind the scenes if they didn't feel it was okay. Um, you know, Suzuki could have lobbied for another team, you know, to bring two more bikes in if they felt that that's what they wanted to do. But financially, you know, it's a massive, massive thing, um, which is why when I said that Kawasaki, they have the funding for that. Suzuki's a, a smaller... Uh, company, I think, overall, um, when it comes to the money side of things, and uh, even Suzuki have to justify their budgets. Yeah, exactly. I think that it's a shame we're not going to see the Suzukis. I mean, that was the hope, you know, a, a really competitive race-winning bike. And to be honest, I can't help but miss, think that Suzuki might have missed a trick here in that if there was a bit of a crack in the door between Petronas and, and the Yamaha relationship, as we thought earlier, Suzuki should have been in there because they won't get another chance to have such a top satellite team. And I think that, you know, they've now chosen not to, not to have a satellite team this year. All of the contracts, a minimum of two years, I think, that have been announced, Grassini's is for two years, for example, with Ducati. So it's putting them back another couple of years if they want a satellite team. Um, the question is, to, you know, to answer the question, how much are Ducati filling a void? As in, you know, well, no one else will supply the bikes, so if we don't give them bikes, they won't be able to race. And how much are they kind of, you know, beating the competition back, you might say? Now, we know that Aprilia did offer Grassini bikes, but it seems like they were offering this year's bikes, so they would have been year-old bikes. That's, that's the rumour anyway. So you can kind of understand that maybe Grassini went, you know, no, no, we'll, we'll go with the Ducati option. Um, so it's, it's a two-way thing. It's, you need the bikes on the grid, but you know, if there's no competition, if there's no viable racewing alternatives, people will take whatever's available. You know? And if it's a Ducati, who cares? I mean, but we don't want to end up like Moto2, where it's, it's you know, two dominated by one manufacturer. That would be 
a shame if it went that, that extreme. But I don't think it will. I think that it's probably... We've seen these eight Ducatis before a few years ago. I think it sort of ebbs and flows a bit. But hopefully the other manufacturers, Suzuki and Aprilia, sooner rather than later, will be able to step in and, and offer a competitive satellite bike. All right, well, um, thank you uh, for sending in that question from... Who was that from? That was from somebody that's fallen off my list now. Junks again. Uh, thank you, Junks. Well remembered, Keith. Um, now, uh, Babair has asked, uh, considering the current woes of um, HRC and the physical mental agony Mark Marquez has had to go through, um, do you think he will be enticed to jump ship to Ducati like Maverick and Johan did? I think he's got enough on his plate as it is at the minute to try and work out exactly where he is. Did I see a stat somewhere that it's exactly a year since his um, injury-inducing uh, crash somewhere about this weekend? Um, you know, what a lot has happened in a year for Mark Marquez. He's gone from being the absolute top dog to being badly injured and having to come back from that injury several times, as it turned out in the end. Now, I can't see Mark shifting from... Honda at the moment. I think he's going to do a bit of a doing. You know, the same. We used to say the same thing about Mick. You know, Mick doing always with Honda all the time. It suited him. You know, Mick's a, Mick was a clever bloke. He wasn't going to be intimidated into jumping onto another manufacturer just because you say somebody says on Twitter that you're not a real world champion because you haven't done it on two two manufacturers yet. You know, the fact was Doohan was dominant in his time because he was a brilliant rider and he got a great relationship with Honda. And I can see the same thing with Mark Marquez. I don't see any cracks in that relationship at all on either side. Um, I'd be amazed if he felt the, the need to jump ship at this point. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that Mark, you, you get the impression, certainly he wants to see out this existing contract. And I think Mark, he's, got, he's getting close to these number of titles. You know, Valentino, you've got Agostini. He's, he's, he's near enough. I think if he was going to make a change, it would be after he perhaps beaten some of these, these, these outstanding records that's, that, are, that are near, but he's not quite there yet. So I think, and I think also having now had the injury, I think he perhaps feels a sense of loyalty as well that, you know what, Honda have stuck by me through this. I didn't ride for a year. You know, we heard reports that maybe he offered even to sort of forfeit his pay for the year. You know, I think that was probably turned down. But anyway, it was a gesture. But, but you know, it was, a, it was a good gesture to make, things like that. I think maybe he, he feels perhaps that, you know, this is his chance to bring the team back up again and kind of pay back Honda for, for you know, standing by him during all this time. Um, and yet, as Keith says, I think that absolutely he'll see out this existing contract with Honda. I wouldn't completely discount moving to another manufacturer in the future, but I think it's a fair way off. Yeah. Fair way off yet, Babair. Thank you for that question. Um, okay, Ian Daniels. Um, here we go. Why is Scott Redding not being mentioned for one of the uh, GP seats? He's super fast, faster than some of the other names in the hat. He's supremely fit, has previous experience, not forgetting the correct passport for Dorna. Love the podcast, by the way. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much, Ian. But um, I've got to say that uh, I think you said already he's got previous experience and so have they of him. And I think that's a key situation here. Um, you know, Scott has made no secret of the fact that, that he'd quite like to be back at it. Um, where's the gaps? Pete's already covered it earlier on in this conversation. There are no gaps. There are... And it, it's, this is not kind of looking after your mate syndrome either. It's a, it's a situation where it moves on so incredibly fast. 
you know, again, I refer to Davizioso. You know, he's still sat on the sidelines. There are there are good people, both old and young, waiting to fill the gaps. Scott Redding's probably had his go, and I think he's already been quoted as saying that he doesn't expect to be given an opportunity to come back. Um, so I think he's pretty much resigned to where he is now. Um, and good on him, a great rider, you know, great bloke, different, which is what we need around the paddock. Like you say, right passport as well in the circumstances, because obviously British riders, top class, um, aren't there at the moment. But it ain't going to happen, not in my view. Yeah, so sadly, I think Scott's best chance, if we're looking at a positive point of view, is to win the World Superbike title and have something in his contract to then get a Ducati ride. I think Ducati would be willing to do that. I think we've heard of these kind of things in the past, but you've got to win the World Championship. That's not an easy task. Um, but I think that's the best chance of, of seeing Scott back in MotoGP would be that he would, if he could stay with Ducati, win the title with them in Superbike, and they would then give him a place in MotoGP on one of these eight bikes that we've got now sometime in the future. But it's difficult. As Keith says, it's difficult. He's been there. He's been at Pramat Ducati already. You know, the, the Scott's problem, his physical size, he was always at a dis disadvantage with that. I mean, that's, that's not changed. It's not gone away. So, you know, he's, he's, he's on a much more even footing in Superbike. We've seen bigger guys, Chaz, people like that. They're, they're able to be much more competitive. Hopefully, to be honest, if Petrucci doesn't stay in MotoGP and it's looking difficult for him, it'd be great to see him in Superbike. You know, another guy, former teammate of Scott, similar size, similar issues with just struggling with their weight sometimes and size. In Superbike, you can still be competitive. So I think, you know, it's not automatic that Scott could just transfer that competitive level from Superbike to MotoGP just on the grounds that, you know, he's, he's still going to have that size disadvantage. So, you know, it would be great to see Scott back. He, you know, as he says, great character, really open guy, you know, you know unfiltered guy, says what he thinks. And, um, you know, it would be great to have a British rider, but it, it's going to be difficult. I think his best chance to say, perhaps only chance, is to win the World Championship with Ducati and maybe move with them just because they've got so many seats on the grid at the moment in the future. All right, well, uh, Ian, there's your answer for you. Now, one final one for you both uh, from Mike Salter, who has decided to uh, write an essay in. So I'm going to try and decipher some of it. Um, in the modern era, is it worth winning the Moto3 junior title and Moto2 intermediate title? Or is it just a race to get any ride in MotoGP? You used to see some riders stick it out and want to be crowned a world champion. But now is the title of a champion that is outside MotoGP worth it to some riders? Have we got too many talented riders coming through now, which is good for the future? But is it making the Stepping Stone Championships less valuable? Have fun with that. No. No, I mean, thank you very much for the question. He's obviously well thought about it. Yeah. The, the fact is, is that the Moto2, Moto3 are legitimate world championships, as the 125s and the 250s were previously. I mean, some riders never got past the 125. You know, they, that, that was their, their kind of level. And the same thing with Moto3. Sometimes a rider sticks with Moto3 till they get to the age where the cutoff is. 28 years old, you can't go past that. Um, Moto2... I think Moto2 has, since Triumph's involvement, I think is a different class altogether. It's a great class now. It was a good class before, albeit with a slightly boring engine. But now we've got, you know, proper telemetry, proper grunt in the mid-range. You know, it's a great option now, uh, Moto2, and much closer to MotoGP than Moto2 ever was before. So, 
No, I think they're legitimate classes. I, 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 I might be missing some of the point there. Is 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 the is some of the point that that, that it's only they're only useful classes to try to get to MotoGP. Um, is that is that the issue? And and riders don't stick around in Moto3 and Moto2 because that's the class they like, or where well, are we going with that? He's yeah. added in uh, just at the bottom. You know, we talked about Ralph Fernandez moving up without worrying about winning the title. Yes, he can still win it this year effectively, and also the Jack Miller move as well. He leapt over Moto2. Where okay. have the previous champion? Where we you know where have the previous champ years champions fared now? But could you make a career out of just being a multiple Moto2 world champion? Well, you could, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But I think that the, the point being is that, you know, <laughs> Fabio Quattararo, you, you don't accuse him of banging around. I mean, he, he won one race legitimately and one that he got disqualified from, I think, and, uh, and went to MotoGP and made a real crack of it. I mean, I think the fact is, is MotoGP, <laughs> for all of us, over all the years, ever, um, you know, top premier class is the top premier class. That's the one you want to be in. That's the one you want to be doing the best in. And it depends where the contracts fall as well. You mentioned Raul Fernandez. Of course, it depends contractually where that fits in. If the best bikes are available next year, even if you don't think you're quite ready for it, you need to be going there because they might not be they might not be there mm. at the end of the next contractual period. So, you know, sometimes you just got to take that punt. I mean, you mentioned Jack Miller as well. Jack Miller was a great example. Went from Moto Three straight to Moto GP, and he also went. I rate Jack so highly. I mean, he absolutely had so much to overcome having done that. He put a bit of weight on. He looked a bit like Fat Jack rather than Fit Jack, and 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 it kind of he had to get over himself to get to the point where he 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 became a really really top line MotoGP rider. At one point, it wasn't a given that jump from direct missing out Moto Two was looking like that might not have been a great idea, and I bet there were a few people team wise as well that were thinking, well, why did we do that to him? Uh, but Jack got over himself, worked really hard. He's a, and I think that's the key, again, with, with, with all these classes. These guys, it's not like it was in the old days. It's, you know, these guys work day and night. There's not a millisecond of any moment of any day. Even though we're on holiday now, they'll all be thinking about what they've got to do. They'll all be working it through. They'll still be out on their motocross bikes i know it's pleasure as well but that they're honing skills all the time still it's not like it used to be this is this is proper concentration working their way through so if you get a leap up early because of contracts then go for it i think i think it's a, i think we've, we've got a great step ladder through cev if you like if you take the spanish championships the junior world championships rookies if you like as well talent cup series around the world i think you know, there are a lot of good places to, to step up on that ladder towards MotoGP. Whether you stop at Moto2 or not, you can make a good career in Moto2. But, of course, it's not MotoGP, and that's where every rider wants to end up. That's where every rider wants to be, world champion MotoGP rider. That's it. I mean, a bit like we mentioned previously, the, the reality is that if you win the Moto2 title, you've got the best chance, really, of getting a MotoGP ride. So it's, it's very difficult to then say, you know, you know what, I don't want a MotoGP ride. As Keith says, everyone wants to be a MotoGP. So if you're successful in the smaller classes, it naturally brings better offers to go up, which you, which you then take. And so it depends on the position of the rider, the rider in his career. So we're seeing Tom, Tom Luti, for example, he's gone to MotoGP and he's come back. Sam Lowe's is the same situation. So, you know, they're spending more time in that intermediate class, shall we say. But if you're, if you're just taking the normal, as he said, the normal ladder up and you're successful, a bit like with, with Fernandez, as we're saying, you know, 
that success brings you offers to go up a class, whether it's motor three to motor two, as Acosta sounds like he'll do next year, he'll be at IO motor two probably. You know, and if you then get the Fernandez offer for MotoGP, well, you, you take it because you don't know when it when another offer might come along, and it might not be anything as good as the one you're getting now. So, it's just the natural direction that everything flows in. If that makes sense, if you do well, you move up. Um, all that we're seeing, the exception of that, is guys that maybe have a hard time and then step back down. I think then it's a different situation, and then they can spend longer time there. But normally, you would expect people, by definition, if they do well in these classes, they move up. Very well put. Well, Mike, thank you for sending in that uh, really great question. I think it is very much, uh, you know, if the opportunity is there, say yes and uh, figure out the rest of it later, isn't it? Um, well, thank you to all of you that have sent in your questions as well. I think that's just about all we've got time for on today's show. We shall return with you this time next week for more MotoGP chat as ever. You can keep up to date with all the very latest on Crash.net. Any questions, send them in all the usual ways. Leave them in the comment section or tweet Instagram, Facebook us. Uh, just search Crash MotoGP. Please do leave us a review as well wherever you get your podcast. It really helps with the algorithm of things uh, as well. And we shall see you right back here next week. Keith, Pete, thank you very much. See you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.